Hello and welcome to episode 107 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I am Anthony Malakian, uh, U.S. editor of Waters, and I'm joined by James Rundle, our news editor. Hello. And we were supposed to have a very special guest uh, this week, um, but then Thomson Reuters and Blackstone decided to have a big deal, so now we just have a... Uh, well, we have another guest to join us, uh, Max Bowie, the editor of Inside Data Management. Thank you, Tony. Hello. Uh, good introduction, yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah. This week, uh, we will have a uh, very special guest next week, but this week, we are pleased to have Max Bowie here, because Max Bowie, how long have you been with Incisive Media Info Pro for now? Um, I joined when it was Risk Waters Group back in September 2000. September 2000, and so that's, if I'm doing math right, we're getting on 18 years about of uh, covering, was it always data or did you start somewhere else first when you came in? I started out working on Risk Magazine and FX Week and uh, the editors very quickly realized that I really didn't know a thing about OTC derivatives, mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. we had we had these other products then called... Uh, Dealing with Technology and DWT. Trading Technology Week. Uh, I didn't know I, Trading Technology Week. Yeah, yeah, and I loved the weekly news cycle. I moved on to them and started writing about trading systems and then on to IMD in 2003. And San yes. So that's at least, you know, we're about 15 years here, at least of covering um, Thomson Reuters, covering the data space. So obviously uh, with this announcement this week about Blackstone, um, entered into an agreement uh, where Thomson Reuters will spin off its financial risk business. Let's let me lay down some facts here for people that may not know all the facts. This is from Max Bowie's uh, initial report. We will be doing some more coverage of this announcement in the weeks to come. But uh, let's see here. For those that don't know, um, Thomson Reuters agreed to deal spin off financial its uh, financial and risk business um, to a consortium led by New York-based investment manager, private equity firm Blackstone Group. The parties will create a new corporation comprising the financial and risk unit. Uh, Thompson Reuters will hold a 45% stake in the business. Blackstone, along with uh, the Canadian, uh, Canada Pension Plan Investment Board um, and the Singapore-based investment firm GIC, which manages the Singaporean uh, government's foreign reserves, they'll, be, they'll own the other 55%. Um, the assets of the new corporation are valued at $20 billion. Thompson Reuters expects to receive $17 billion gross proceeds from the deal. Um, they'll pay down vendor debt, pay taxes, yada, yada, yada. Um, let's see here. And then, for those that don't know, the financial risk division includes the vendor's real-time market data ter- uh, feeds, its terminals, market data distribution platforms and data infrastructure, reference data and evaluated pricing operations, indexes, trading platforms and front ends, and risk management tools. This is a big deal. Um, and in today, uh, so this is Thursday, we're recording this, uh, Blackstone held its um, quarterly uh, or its earnings call and the CEO, co-founder, chairman, Stephen Schwartzman, he said it's the largest private equity deal since the financial crisis. I wasn't able to independently verify that just yet, but it, it is a big deal regardless. In this space, at least. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, Max, you know, can you maybe provide a little bit of perspective, I guess, as to how this shifts the landscape in the data space and the terminal space? You know, what what, what kind of what were kind of some of your initial impressions? Well. Uh... I think we won't see how it affects the landscape for a little while and, and until it all plays out and things stabilize. I mean, what if you can imagine 
at the moment, instead of redrawing continental lines, what we've essentially done is, is this will split that group off as an island or a, a houseboat, and then we're going to see where it floats to. And if they split off other lifeboats from there, uh, I shouldn't use lifeboats, that's a wrong analogy. Um, <laughs> But, you know, if they split off smaller boats and those end up at different homes, that's the thing. This, this is a group of, of strange bedfellows, if you will. You've got private equity money. You've got uh, investment funds. You've got GIC being involved in it. And, the, the, you know, the question is going to be, uh, do Blackstone and the others uh, have a, a true appetite to get into this business space and become a data vendor, or are there certain aspects of it that they have a particular interest in, some of the smart data analytics, for example, but they don't want to be involved in running a terminal business, mm-hmm. um, or are they in this to reposition and transform the company, do some of the things that it's much harder to do when you're a listed company, subject to the shareholders, and you know, basically, do very much what Silver Lake and Warburg Pincus did with interactive data. You know, you pay a huge amount for them, you take, uh, whatever, five or six years, knuckle down, do a lot of hard work of consolidating, rationalizing, optimizing, cutting out the fat, um, turning things into, uh, giving them a more credible position in the marketplace, and then you turn around and, and make uh, make even more money uh, by selling to uh, someone else who recognizes the value of being in that business. In that case, it was intercontinental exchange. And that's the example that the analysts I've spoken to have pointed me towards. They say, look at what happened with IDC. Look at who stepped in. I, you know, Intercontinental exchange was not expected to, to win the bidding for them or to even, even to be in play. That was uh, something of a surprise back when that happened. Mm-hmm. And it may be that Blackstone and its partners um, hold on to this, turn it into a completely separate standalone business. Uh, it may be that in a few years' time they flip it to someone else, and it could be equally surprising who that is. It kind of tallies with, with what I heard from one of my VC guys I spoke to yesterday. So, you know, don't expect this just to be a, a brand new, all singing, all dancing fintech company that can challenge the likes of Bloomberg. You might find that, as you say, elements of it are attractive to Blackstone and to the consortium that now owns it, um, you might equally find that a lot of it gets parceled off and sold off bit by bit until they have kind of the core of what they want and then it actually ends up being augmentative to other companies rather than a direct challenger. That's, you know. Well maybe, you know, so Tony James, who's uh, the company's uh, chief operating officer, um, so in uh, the call today um, he was asked a question about, you know, the deal, what it means for the company. And uh, he had maybe two things that maybe hint toward that. I don't know. But uh, he said, um, part of it said, we've also built an internal data group, uh, which is now participating with all of our different groups in bringing data applications uh, to the investment process and starting to mine our own portfolio companies for data that has value in terms of both our own investments and potentially third-party market value. Um, he said, we're big believers in data, and that's certainly a driver behind the Thompson Reuters business. Um it's the most valuable part of their business by far is the data. The terminals are the legacy business for which people think of them, but that's not where the future of the company is. Well, exactly, and I doubt that Blackstone has much of an interest in running a Ceph, for instance. You know, I mean, it's going to want the the lucrative part of it. Icon maybe not being that, but you know, the rest of the 
analytics platforms and the partnerships they have with various other things, you know, maybe. Yeah. And you know, it, so if IDC is the, the the potential way that you know that this could go, do you kind of recall any instances over the last fifteen years of a deal to size where it kind of went wrong, where the company just kind of fell apart, really, or yeah, I guess where it just kind of just faltered and it just got sold off for a song later on. Noisy tech, right? I mean, when oh, tech school. They kind of, uh, I guess it didn't go wrong, but I, um, you know, I bought Noisy and then just parceled off Wombat and Nifix and various other parts, and yeah, before you know it, there's no such company as Noisy Tech anymore. It's sure. just you know the various bits and pieces they kept in. Mm-hmm. So. That that particular example, though, I mean, from the beginning they started out with very, I don't want to say unrealistic, but very ambitious expectations. Yeah. They they claimed they were going to be you know a hundred million dollar company within a matter of years. And there was no way they were going to do that unless they kept buying and buying and buying. Mm-hmm. Um, and when that, that you know, there, and there were some, uh, you know, not just the Nisey name, but some big individual names associated with that. Um, you, you might say the biggest example is, um, and I, I don't want to say that it, you know, went wrong or fell apart, but don't forget, we're, we're only 10 years since Thomson bought Reuters, mm-hmm. and although th- this deal is bigger than the Reuters acquisition, even though this doesn't include their news operations, they are going to pay uh, a substantial. Uh, sorry, Blackstone, the partners, they're going to. This new company is going to pay a substantial sum uh, on an annual basis. Three hundred twenty-five million per year yeah. um, for th- for a thirty-year deal to license back. The Reuters news. Mm-hmm. So even without that news business, this is still a bigger deal than when Thompson bought, uh, agreed to buy Reuters in two thousand seven. Oh, it's phenomenal for the news business, right? That's a guaranteed kind of stipend year on year that keeps coming in. But like, what, like ninety billion over thirty years or something? Is there, there up? is that to it. But the the thing is that I mean, it's almost like the fate of Reuters bookended the the, the state of the financial markets. Mm-hmm. You know, we had the the deal was uh, agreed in two thousand, closed in two thousand eight, and instantly. Um, you saw underperformance because of the state that the markets were in, yeah. mm-hmm. and and so I can imagine that Thompson was not happy with that from the start. You know, beyond their control, but so be it. And they, you know, that part of the business struggled for a long time. You know, they were seeing declining revenues, and to their credit, they've you know done they worked very hard to build that back up. And now that it's uh, in this state, um, you know, we see uh, almost a, a reversal. Of the deal, we're seeing this. Uh, what is basically the combination of the Reuters business and the old, uh, their old competitor, Thompson Financial, mm-hmm. now being now being spun out. Okay. So, um, and just following on that point as well, I mean, a lot of people said that this could be a good thing in many ways because you know one of our contacts we spoke to yesterday said that uh, you know Thompson Reuters is a company that doesn't move very quickly as yeah. it is now. It's you know it's got a lot of legacy middle management, a lot of internal kind of processes and ways of doing things. Actually, Stefan uh, from Thomson Reuters, Thomson Reuters? Thomson Reuters said <laughs> on the um, on the uh, the webcast when they went through the deal, just said, you know, that there are differences in the pace at which a privately held company can take on some challenges, you know. Mm. They're not worried about the quarter-to-quarter reporting that Thomson Reuters have, and, you know, they can be a bit more flexible and a bit quicker. Um, I think it's important as well to note that Thomson Reuters isn't just Icon, it isn't just, you know, Oracle and all the stuff they're doing. 
on technology side. They've got a lot of investments in a lot of different companies. Like they own half of TradeWeb. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got a lot of minority investments, a lot of fintech firms as well. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens to those as part of this kind of. Are those investments do we know included in this deal or so like TradeWeb's aspect of this? Mm-hmm. Are, is that investment coming through what this new core company will be, or will that still stay with the... I mean, I don't know if definite, but I would assume that if they're taking the financial and risk side of it, then those investments would go with it, because Reuters News wouldn't have an interest in yeah. half a trade web. Would yeah. It, so, yeah. But I just wonder if you're if you're a partner of Thomson Reuters, if you're looking at this going, oh, are they going to strip this back now with the new refocused, leaner plan that the private equity guys put in? Or like said, will it get sold off to somebody else that maybe, you know, yeah. get kicked down the street they can't kick down the street again mm. um is there any company i guess you know bloomberg is going to be bloomberg you know i'm sure they look at this with interest but is there anybody that maybe is looking at this like maybe a fact set or something like that that is either really excited seeing maybe an opportunity or that maybe is a little bit concerned um beyond companies that are invested that thompson mm. words invested in but you know, do, do you kind of see some other uh, players that maybe just below uh, TR that uh, maybe think that they can either move up or that they're going to have to potentially merge or have some you know kind of extra movement after after this deal? The the difference between the two leading data vendors, Bloomberg um, and uh, and Thomson Reuters as we know it today. Uh, and the rest of the market is 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 is, is, is an, an enormous gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to the two thousand and seven deal, you had you know Reuters was the leading provider. You had Bloomberg nipping at its heels, and in third place, Thompson Financial, mm-hmm. which was substantially smaller than the others, but still clearly the third placed. Um, you know that deal took away some of that competition, and ultimately Bloomberg still gained the upper hand. Um, now we've got players like, uh, as you said, FactSet um, and uh, S&P Capital IQ, uh, sorry, uh, Standard Poor's uh, Global Market Intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and those guys have niches that they go after and those niches are very stable and, and you look at FactSet's results, you know, those guys um, grow like clockwork every year. Um, you've also got people like Morningstar who are who are huge in investment research, and you know trying to make a play in the broader market data space. You've got companies like Active Financial, and how do they uh, how do they grow themselves further? Do they take on something? Do they merge with someone else? Mm. And then you've got someone like um, uh, Six Group, uh, which you know is a is a massive player in in Europe, and you know really controls the Swiss market in terms of uh, uh, the exchange settlement and market data distribution but which is still you know traditionally struggled over here mm-hmm. um, so all of those players might be looking at this and wondering how it's going to affect their ability to compete I would imagine that many of them will think in the short term there's an opportunity any deal like this is always going to create a certain amount of, of uncertainty mm-hmm. and if you're re- if, if you get a contract come up for renewal with a company and you don't know who's going to own them or what their name is going to be or what else might go on there over the next five years. It's going to be stuff like that, you, yeah. You may, you may look elsewhere and there are going to be people, uh, I, I mean, I just, I remember instances uh, where after the Thomson Reuters deal, Interactive Data was actually able to go in and snap up some big wins, you know, seemingly uh, precisely because of that. Well, I think that's, you know, 
one thing that you've always heard about facts and the reason why they jumped in my, my head uh, uh, immediately um, because of their growth and they have this you know, have a reputation as being a more nimble uh, firm that can actively change with the market whereas the Thomson Reuters is as you as James pointed out is a little bit can be sometimes mired in mud a little bit um, so that's kind of what I was kind of thinking there is that you know they might view this as actually not necessarily yes there could be an immediate opportunity but if this works out well then maybe you know thompson becomes a little with this entity of thompson Reuters, this piece of thompson Reuters now becomes a little bit more nimble than it was in the past so it can be both uh, uh both sides of the sword and fact set is an interesting example because um to to what the blackstone coa said about understanding the value of data, mm-hmm. you know, facts that really do get that, and they've, uh, um, back in the day, I think around like um, 2003 or 2004, facts that originally aggregated lots of third-party data sets, mm-hmm. and they were primarily known as an analytics company. Um, they they were providing clever stuff on top of other people's data, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a time. Um, when I, I guess somebody realized, you know, we actually 40% of our data we licensed from, uh, I believe it was Thomson Financial. Mm-hmm. And at that time, if I recall correctly, Thomson Financial was going through a phase of saying, you know, no, we should, we should keep our proprietary content. That's our value. We shouldn't let other people piggyback off it. And, you know, being faced with losing access to almost half of its content facts that went on uh, went on the acquisition trail and for example the, the first deal I remember was buying JCF for estimates data okay. and they they truly do recognize the value of owning and being able to control to capture yourself to manipulate the data that the way you want it to serve your clients I was gonna say I mean if you're a if you're a fact set or a company that's Got relatively deep pockets has been on a bit of a spending spree at the moment. I imagine you'd be smart to be licking your lips or preparing another war chest for the bits that will fall off the side that you might be able to snap up relatively easily. Like you know, Blackstone goes, I want a quick sale of this to recoup X million or whatever, and then fine, come in and snap it up. You know, if you're an analytics provider or uh, anybody involved with this, and there's a particularly nice piece of Thomson Reuters, or even going in and looking to hire some of the talent away if they're unsure about their future, and you can sure. just say, hey, come work for us, you know. And then, um, and that was one thing that they mentioned that, uh, who was it, um, again, this was uh, Tony talking about that, though, that um, having said all that, I think that this is a journey that we're just beginning, and while we've, got, uh, while we've got a team, it'll take more investment in the team, it'll take somewhat of a cultural change, it'll take education around our people. So there is always that, anytime there's one of these deals, that cultural kind of issue becomes a huge piece. You know, whether you see it with Mises um, Sophus, I can think back, um, uh, FIS Sungard, you know, kind of some of these major, major deals, you know, you kind of saw some of these cultural clashes and, you know, it takes a little bit of time to work that out sometimes. Um, the other thing I'd be interested in, and maybe I'm off base here, but... Thompson Reuters has been very active in the partnership um, phase, specifically around Symphony and kind of people partnering using Icon as kind of the center, but let's create our services around this Icon offering. Let's try and create this interoperability between um, these different you know pieces of 
you know, pre-execution and post-trade um, services. Does that get affected at all by this, do you think? I think a lot of it depends on, on what Blackstone's intention is here, really. I mean, like, are they going in because they see an opportunity as a private equity firm to take this, slim it down, make it lean, mean, and ready to go, and then just sell it off for a, for a profit? Or are they looking to enter the space as a partner for a fintech firm and, uh, and for a markets firm? I mean, if that's the case, and it's a massive diversification in their business, surely, but like, then that gives them the opportunity to pursue that kind of front-to-back, holistic you know, enterprise approach that a lot of these vendors talk about. If they're looking to go in with an investment horizon of the typical PE, like you know, five to ten years or whatever, I don't see that being a major uh, focus of really. I think they focus on the, the profit making stuff and then get rid of everything else, and then you see a change company. But you have any insights, Max? That's that, that's probably a pretty good analysis of it. I mean, the, the, the partnerships really just it allows you to make something available that you don't necessarily have the 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 appetite or the investment. To go away and do it all yourself, you know we've seen we've seen this throughout the ages. The difference now is that people can use this app store model, and and it's easier to make uh, somebody else's data available through your platform, you know, and and to have it look like everything else that's that's on there. Mm. You know, it's it's much easier than the integration projects that you would have had to go through in the past. But by the same chalk, you know, it, it's easier to then be able to drop that if sure. uh, if someone comes in and takes a hard look at this particular model or against all the partners that you have and says well why are we doing this why are we doing that then you could probably rationalize that um, pretty easy and also be focused on divestments and, and people dropping parts of it there's also scope for investment as well so maybe they'll pick up other pieces of technology because they've got the financial wherewithal and the relationships to do that um, whereas perhaps a big lumbering organisation like TR didn't at the time, so maybe they'll find sure. that smaller companies might in turn get snapped up by the new company to, to add to their value proposition, but, you know. Yeah. Well, I think that this uh, there's going to be a lot that's going to come out of this. Obviously, you know, you kind of want to get a, a market feel in the beginning, and we'll, we'll be writing some stories around that, what some people's concerns are, and um, what they think maybe some potential is uh, for this deal. We'll, we'll certainly be covering that in the weeks and months to come. And if you're a client, reach out. We'll yeah. To hear from you. Um, yeah. yeah, we will include our emails and everything like that. Um, it's also nice having Max, you know, somebody with the knowledge that you have, with the experience. Uh, you know, I think that provides some uh, really good insight. So you are a special guest for us, Max. And the other nice thing is, you know, today I had to go and listen to this earnings call. And it made me want to drink. And whenever I want to drink, these I are two people way. that I really like to drink with. <laughs> um, so I figure since we have you on um, the podcast, uh, you know, maybe we can kind of discuss some of the new watering holes, some of the new uh, either beers or breweries that you've been checking out that, uh, that, uh, that maybe some of our listeners that live in New York City uh, or, you know, if you've been traveling elsewhere, uh, might be interested in. What you to the head there? Uh, well, I was lucky enough to spend um, Christmas and New Year on the West Coast, but I was unlucky enough to come down with flu for most of that time, <laughs> so I didn't really didn't really get out and visit some of the places I wanted to, whether that be wine up in Napa or even just uh, even just Moylan's Brewery up the road from where my in-laws live. Um, however, back in Astoria, um, uh, I can tell you one of one of the places. Uh, very close to me, literally just off the 30th Avenue NW train, 
um, in Astoria. Uh, the, the, the place, it's a smokehouse called Salt and Bone, and they have a, a great, very frequently rotating selection of draft beers. One of those at the moment is um, a, a brewery that I'm a, a big fan of, and it's a tiny little brewery out in, um, uh, I think it was, Mas I, they were in Maspeth and I think now moved into, into Ridgewood, Queens, and it's literally this guy who started brewing beer in his, in his garage mm -hmm. and then, you know, had to extend his garage and then eventually, like, get a bigger space. The, the beer is called Bridge and Tunnel. Oh, Bridge and Tunnel, sure. Yeah. Um, and is that the one that's out? Are they, are they based in a factory around there? Like an old factory? Or is it... Because uh, my... I live in Richmond, my um, neighbour was telling me about he went to a brewery and it was very bare bones, but great beer and... I, I wonder think if that's him. I'll confess I've never visited. Yeah. But I know that they, they I mean I know they have a small kind of tap room and tasting room oh, there. Nice. Okay. Um and uh, I'm I'm a fan of everything they do and their uh, their nut brown ale is one of the beers on tap at Salt and Bone in Astoria right now. Uh, Salt and Bone, by the way, is uh, the, the I think the latest brainchild of the, the guys who founded Bear Burger, which started out in Astoria and just oh, right. Grew like wildfire. They've now got places in. It's because they charge twenty five dollars for a burger. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what there was? Uh, oh, there was one other I was going to tell you. The single cut still exists. Yeah, yes, yeah, single cut I've, is still up at When Dumas. they first opened, you could find them actually in a lot of uh, you know places that would serve you know microbrews stuff like that around New York City. I haven't seen them in a long time, so I wasn't sure if they just kind of if they petered out or if uh, they're still kicking. There's still a lot around uh, locally. They may have uh, they they've started getting their stuff into cans. Okay. So it may be they're focusing more on distribution, re to to retail now mm. rather than restaurants. Um, oh, uh, Rockaway Brewing Company Rockaway. also got their canning set up. That's a brewery down in uh, Long Island City. Well, Long uh, Island City's got some really good ones. You got um the the, the two that I wanted to bring up was um uh, Fifth Hammer, is a small little place. Outstanding, outstanding beers. Uh, they also have some really good, you know, on the saison side of the spectrum, and then uh, Big Alice Brewing, um, also an LIC, you know, kind of factory uh, area down there. Um, a lot of really good uh, pale ales, IPAs uh, down there. So LIC is really kind of um, blowing up, and you can take the ferry right over there. Boom! Get off the East River Ferry. Walk to the places. Good. Mm. It's a nice little day. Mm -hmm. Make a nice little day out of it. Yeah. There's um, another. Have you ever had? Um, I. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever had um, iconic? I used to no. see them. I C O N Y C. So okay. a nice N Y C reference on the end, right? Yes. Um, I used to see yeah, them in. Next, yeah. yeah, thank you. In it just in bottles, like the the kind of larger saison bottles around in some of the local stores uh, but not that long ago they opened up a, a tasting room um, in Astoria uh, very very close to the uh, 48th Street R train mm -hmm. uh, down near where anyone who knows Queens uh, down near where the Guitar Center is on Northern Boulevard um, they're very close to that they've, they've opened a tap room there uh, and they have some great stuff you can go mm -hmm. in you can have a pint you can you can order a flight. You can order two flights. They've got some pretty exotic stuff on there, and they change it up with uh, you know, with whatever they're brewing at the time. Yeah, nice. Um, east uh, and get you know, my neighborhood. A uh, couple 
really great ones. Uh, Innerboro, and so in the Bushwick, East Williamsburg area, Innerboro is fantastic. They're, some of their IPAs are just knock your socks off, just delicious. And um, uh, uh, Kings County uh, Brewing Company, KCBC, uh, has a lot of interesting kind of ales. Um, yeah, KCBC, like get a beer street, get some KCBC. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, beer street, a great place, right? You know, it's very close to my home, so you know, don't come and stalk me. But Graham it is, Avenue, is it? Yeah, Graham Avenue. Um, and they, 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 when they first started, so you had like this kind of beer, because uh, you always had the the Spite and Dival was in, uh, you know, kind of that area of Williamsburg, and then Tourist opened up on in Greenpoint. Um, so these really, really great beer bars to go along with, again, Spite and Dival, Mugs Ale House. So these really specialize in hard-to-find beers. And Beer Street um, on Graham Avenue, which I think is the best of them all, first kind of was competing in that space, you know, kind of get, you know, you get some, like, Hill Farmstead and stuff like that. Now they've really kind of just changed their focus to just, you know, kind of microbrews in New York City, and you get some really, really good, interesting stuff. So the many best, of the, the uh, things that we're talking about right my now. life have been in that bar. That's, yeah. Uh, Incredible, and also the well as well. Oh, and the well uh, is another yes. great. I mean, me and uh, me and Tony and, and Tim Murray went drinking there the other Monday, and we were drinking Hill Farmstead Pale yeah. Ales for uh, two dollars a pour. Was it it's, two dollars yeah, Hill yeah. Farmstead? It's and you can't find that anywhere else. Yeah, it's 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 and they have a, a wide selection of beers that you can drink for two dollars. Uh, it's East Williamsburg, isn't it? I think. Yeah, so it's yeah. like East Williamsburg, Bushwick. Yeah, um, I shoot pull out of Anchored Inn, which is uh, basically right across the street from there. So uh, you can also visit me on Wednesdays there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so those are, and then uh, Three's Brewing in uh, Gowanus, uh, out by where Alice, my girlfriend, works. Um, that's another good place to check out if ever you end up over there. Nice. All right. Well. We will be back with more coverage of both beer and Thomson Reuters <laughs> in the future. I will take more entrance in the beer talk, you know, but, uh, you know, when we need a uh, superhero max coming in. We should in do a, a special beer. beer and Bowie edition at some a point. A beer and Bowie? <laughs> yeah. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, thanks uh, for joining us, Max. You're very welcome. Love, lovely to be here. And next week we will be here. Uh, Dan Schleifer from Chart IQ uh, j- uh, joined us, and he's going to talk to us about opening up a fintech startup um, in this yeah. environment. Some of the challenges. I actually in found a barn in Virginia. Yeah, well. <laughs> out of a barn in Virginia. Um, it was actually a really, really interesting uh, discussion. Uh, so if you're one of those people that works at a large bank or at a vendor and says. No, I want to kind of create my own thing. I want to create my own brewery kind of thing, you know? It's kind of a how-to guide, really. This is yeah. uh, this will hopefully provide a little bit of some of the things you should keep in mind, uh, some of the pitfalls that you can run into. So that will be next week. Um, and like I said, we'll continue covering this um, Thompson Reuters news. But until then, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. 